Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So how's your uh, your week been? Um, you know, you've been here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we've been uh, in self-imposed isolation now for a week. And it's at a point now where I'm taking notes of little things that I've learned or experiences that we've had. For example, let me see here. Um, the other night, Kat was making some delicious fried chicken, not real chicken. We use like, you know, the you know vegetarian chicken substitute. But we had run out of cornflakes. And so, you know, to make things stretch, to make ends meet, Kat made fried chicken strips with uh, with a bran flake coating. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was half bran flakes, half corn flakes. Um, it was actually at your suggestion uh, and well done. Thank you. I think that um, it's times like these that we really learn how to be ingenuitive and um, <laughs> our delicious crispy chicken can then also make us regular. Yes. So it's <laughs> it works on a couple of different um, <laughs> uh, different points. Uh, Kat said this the other day and it cracked me up. Just out of the blue, she looked up and she said, you know, sometimes I wake up and I think you could kill me in my sleep and there's nothing that I could do about it. Mm -hmm. But you don't. And that's nice. It is nice. Here's the thing is I have uh, deep deep trust issues and so it occurs to me all the time the ways that you could be plotting to kill me <laughs> or get out of this relationship uh -huh. and uh and then i have to kind of like talk myself out of it and like no he's stuck around for a while now and also not <laughs> murdered you yes so not even attempted not even a little bit and another thing i've learned is oh, that cat cat hates the song buffalo stance by nina cherry I do. It actually makes her angry. It does. I love it. I'm a child of the 80s. What can I say? Not even a little bit accurate. You're a child of the 50s. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> In many ways, that's true. Another thing that I've really enjoyed about our time uh, spent in the house together is that, uh, one, we've been watching Twin Peaks, which I've never watched before, so mm-hmm. I'm digging on it hoard. Uh, but also is uh, because we have this time and because I think we're going a little stir crazy, um, you have now written lyrics to the Twin Peaks theme song. <laughs> That's true. Uh, the intro is very, very long. Um, <laughs> the music is haunting. Yeah. And uh, now we have uh, lyrics to it uh, written by Jay. It yeah. goes a little something like this. It goes like this. Twin, Twin Peaks. Peaks. Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks. That's that's how much free time that we have. But at least we're using it for good. That's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's really benefiting mankind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're welcome. All right. I'm going to go first today. Yes, please. If you don't mind, uh, since it's my turn. I still, uh, to this day, I mean... 200 plus episodes later, I'm not able to keep track of that at all. I'm going to tell you a story about a guy named Akbar Salubiru. He's a man from Indonesia who vanished one warm spring day. Oh. At 25 years old, Akbar worked as a palm oil harvester in a remote village on the island of West Sulawesi, Indonesia. Now, he would harvest the palm nut, which they call a kernel. I don't know how if you know how this works. I do a little bit because I've learned a lot about how it's detrimental to our environment yeah. and we should stop buying things that uh, contain palm oil. At the center of each piece of fruit um, is there's what they call a kernel, mm-hmm. and uh, the palm kernel oil is extracted from that that specific part of the plant. Palm oil can be harvested 12 months a year, which is one of the reasons why it has become such a popular vegetable oil. Right. Um, in, in, in many, many mass-produced products. And the harvesting of it is just destroys the land. Uh, and any video that you'll see of sad orangutans is obviously yeah. because of palm oil. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sure that palm oil being bad is not the point of your story. <laughs> no, no. Please continue. No, no. Palm oil provided... Akbar and his family a meager but irregular wage. Um, so on on Sunday, March 25th, 2017, he left for the palm groves, as he did most days. Uh, that day was a little bit overcast. The forecast was calling for rain. He picked up his tools. He said goodbye to his family and headed, headed out to the palm grove, which wasn't too far from his house. Okay. He did not return. They waited all night for him didn't show up the next day they waited all morning nothing akbar's family became concerned obviously Obviously. um he had not returned so they contacted the local police and police they didn't you know it only been a day Mm. so police didn't want to jump right out there and you know put a search party out in the field that quickly so they thought they'd give it one more day okay before sending out the search party for him so the morning after he was reported missing the search party set out the first place they searched was obviously the palm grove, where he went to do his palm oil harvesting. Then they branched out to uh, the surrounding area. They had no luck, not even a clue as to where he might have, have gone. At this point, they started fanning out and searching an ever-broadening uh, perimeter. The search continued throughout the day. Meanwhile, um, back at Akbar's home, 
the portion of the family that wasn't involved in the search party waited for some word as to what happened to him. Sure. So they're, they're sitting in their backyard and they noticed something very strange. There was a 23-foot reticulated python that had slithered into their backyard oh, no. and was dying. They could see what appeared to be the outline of a pair of boots in the snake's belly. Oh, no. Upon closer examination, they could see the outline of what appeared to be an adult human. Whoa. The snake was 23 feet long. And he he was not well because he had eaten a person. He was he was dying. Aww. Yeah. So villagers um, cut open the snake and they found Akbar's body inside this snake. Um <clears throat> quick question. Yeah. Is he okay? <laughs> <laughs> he had been in there for two days. So oh, okay. So no. No, no. no. <laughs> How, though? Yeah. Well, my first thought when I read the story was, this can't be real. Right. Can a snake really eat a human being? Reticulated pythons are found in, the Southeast, in Southeast Asia and are among the longest and heaviest snakes of the world. Um, now, was the snake dying because... Because... He ate something too big. Because, okay. Oh. And his boots probably were sticking out. Anyway, can a snake eat a human? Many snakes found across the islands of Indonesia can reach up to uh, seven meters or 23 feet. This is certainly, this snake was one of the largest snakes that they had uh, seen there. Their diets usually consist of small mammals and birds. Mm. Uh, prey is squeezed to death and then swallowed whole attacks on humans are rare some have occurred by wild southeast asian pythons others have been made by by captive snakes most of the attacks on humans by these snakes um are children sure you know they're smaller and a little bit easier to you yeah. know but pythons rarely kill and eat humans although there have been stories of them you know swallowing young children or sure. animals. In this case, though, yes, this is real. The process was videoed and documented by witnesses. This was the first fully confirmed case of a reticulated python killing and consuming an adult human. And the video can be found on YouTube, and, and trust me, it's not pleasant. I just want to know how. Like, how, did, how does he catch him? Like, how do you catch an adult man? I did a little research on that. That, I'll get to that in just a, a, okay. a minute. The village secretary, Salabiro Junaidi, told the Jakarta Post, quote, people had heard cries coming from the palm grove the night before Akbar was found in the snake's stomach. Akbar's wife was away from home at the time that her husband disappeared, and she found out through media reports oh, no. that her husband had been eaten by a 23-foot python. That's terrible. Okay, so... That's not a common occurrence, clearly. Obviously. But one year later, on June 14th, 2018, a 54-year-old woman named Watiba, also of the same village as Akbar, was eaten by a reticulated python that had slithered into her garden. Wow. At her house. So they're coming right into the yard and eating people. Sure. Well, they don't have, I mean, it's not surprising that they're having to leave their habitat and come into people 
land <laughs> because their habitat's being destroyed by palm farming. They say that the palm groves themselves, the way that they're planted and, uh, and laid out, uh, make for a perfect hunting ground. For pythons, because there's, you know, it's easier for them to get around. They can spot their prey. Now, I don't know if you remember back in 2013, there was there were a couple of young boys in New Brunswick, Canada that um, were crushed to death by a python. I don't remember that. They were staying at a friend's house. And the house, the apartment was above a an exotic pet store. Mm -hmm. This snake was an African rock python. A type of constrictor that has known has been known to uh, to kill humans. This is according to National Geographic. This snake was fourteen to six feet, uh, sixteen feet long, and had got out of its enclosure mm. in the pet store into the vents, went up into the bedroom where these two little boys were sleeping, came down through the vent, and suffocated them wow. to death. So National Geographic asked uh, Ian Ricciro who is the curator of reptiles and amphibians at the Los Angeles Zoo about the feeding habits and how does, you know, answering your question pretty much, how do they, they kill? Well, again, according to National Geographic, it's very rare for pythons to kill humans, but not unheard of. Oftentimes, it's just kind of a perfect storm. You get a big hungry snake that's close to humans, mm. but they're not normally part of uh, the snake's natural prey. Usually, if they kill something, it's because they're going to eat it. They they don't do that if they just feel threatened. What they'll do is they'll bite you and right. then scoot away, or they'll just scoot away. Yeah, snake scooting. It's a well-known tactic. According to uh, this particular reptile expert at the Los Angeles Zoo, if the uh, snake is going to go to the trouble of killing you... Right, because that expends a lot of energy. Yep, then they're, they're hungry. Right. That's... You know, they're not going to do that and just leave you there. A snake is made up primarily of bone and muscle. They're extraordinarily strong. Uh, it can be startling just holding a smaller, medium-sized constrictor. Uh, some people in the past who have had snakes or these pythons as pets, uh, there were a couple of situations in Florida where they had them around their neck and the, and the constrictor, you know, started Constricting. Yeah, and choke the person out. It happens pretty quickly, too. It doesn't take long. Some people have um, passed out and subsequently died from suffocation by pet pythons. Mm. Now, here's how they kill. When a python or a boa is killing a prey, they kind of ambush you or whatever their prey is. It's, it's a technique they use in which they jump out at you and strike at you and grab you with their teeth. They'll seize the prey item with their teeth and simultaneously wrap their coils around it and squeeze. When the victim exhales, that's the time they squeeze a little bit harder. Right. To the point where you can't breathe anymore. That makes perfect sense. And then they will eat you, probably head first, which is what happened to this guy. There have been cases where snakes have eaten entire adult antelopes, horns and all. Wow. That's, it just doesn't seem smart. Yeah. You want to avoid giant pokey things right. in your intestinal tract, mm. I would imagine. Yeah. Well, when they do eat something like that, normally the outcome is the snake dies. Mm. But they don't, they don't uh, discriminate between, well, this guy's got pointy antlers. They just think dinner. Right. And down you go. So 
How terrifying must this have been for Akbar? He's out harvesting his palm nuts, mm. you know, and the snake ambushes him, grabs him with his with its teeth, coils around him. And pure then, muscle. Yeah, pure muscle. This thing is 23 feet long. And every time he exhales, it gets a little tighter yeah. and a little tighter yeah. and a little tighter until he blacks out. And he knows what the end result is right. going to be. And then the snake brings him home. See, that was the weirdest part for me. Yes. Is that the snake ended up in the guy's backyard. That's bizarre. And it wasn't that far from the palm grove, but it was weird that that's as far as the snake got. Right. Yeah. That's bizarre. So there you go. Don't have snakes is my advice to you. Well, that's, come on. Most snakes aren't going to eat your friendly neighborhood Akbar. Well, that may be true, but why would an exotic pet store in New Brunswick have a 13-foot African rock python for sale? That can't be safe. You know, maybe he doesn't mean to kill you, but he's he's huge and his instinct is to squeeze. You you know, you put him on your neck and you're like, "Hey, look at me. I've got a feather." Mhm. Well, I think you could ask that about a lot of pets. Like, why would you have that if it could kill you? And, you know. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. <sighs> Twin Peaks. <laughs> Twin Peaks. See, look at I have a snake skin that I uh, captured last year. That's year true. You, you, you found a large snake in our yard. Now, granted, in Maine, there are no poisonous snakes. No, there but, aren't even really big snakes. No, but this one was, what, about three feet? I'd say about three feet. There was one similar size. It may have been the same one because mm-hmm. you found that snake skin in the same area. But there was a um, about a three-foot garter snake or whatever they are. And it was coiled up and its head was up like it was about to strike. See, I would have run screaming into the woods. Like it was about to strike. (laughs) And what's Kat's response? She gets down and takes a selfie with it. He was so cute. Anyway, and then I found his skin later. And it's hanging on the wall in our studio. Yeah. The end. And now, that thing in the middle. Today's thing in the middle. Back to the Freaks, a box of oddities group on Facebook. Um, Crystal asks, does anyone have any useless superpowers? (laughs) I have one. I find random baseball caps, like, everywhere. Um, they go on to talk about how they don't keep them or pick them up because, ew, um, and also because she'd have so many of them. Crystal says, my husband didn't believe me when I first told him until I started pointing them out to him. <laughs> Last night we went for a walk and I saw one up in a tree. I can't figure out if this is a power I could use for good or evil. It's just useless. She what says, are yours? Yeah, she says she's found over 150 ball caps. Mm. That's crazy. What are your superpowers? Aaron says, my worthless superpowers are regardless of what time I go to bed, what time my alarm is set for, I always wake up just minutes before my alarm goes off. I have that superpower, too. It's true. Number four, Vicky says, I always find bones in my meat, and I'm invisible to bartenders. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, Josh writes, I know where my wife's phone is at all times. She could leave it somewhere, and I will know exactly where the location is without even seeing it. 
Wow. <laughs> wow, that's pretty impressive. That's handy and would be very helpful at times because I am constantly just randomly putting my phone down and then going, now where the hell did I put my phone? <laughs> Number two, Dana writes, my superpowers are predicting pregnancies. And ever since I was a kid, if I think or talk about some random old movie, it'll be on TV within the next few days. Gerald writes, ironclad bladder here. I can go all day without peeing. And then let a mighty stream go for minutes and or gallons. Great for writing in the snow. Ironclad bladder. That is a, that's a great superhero name. I wonder what his costume would look like. I bet it would be yellow. Did you ever get to see Eva Mendez working at Hot Dog on a Stick in Glendale, California? Well, let me tell you, neither did I. This is The Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house, yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month 
free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The podcast that's more fun than a barrel full of monkeys. Okay, that was an expression before animal rights became a thing. Oh, great. Now Kat's really pissed because she thinks we're promoting animal abuse and exploitation. And we're not. And now Jethro's in a weird spot because we met him first, so he... You know what? Just fuck it. This is the Box of Oddities. Karen sent us a message. Here's another another example of the Box of Oddities coincidence effect. She recently had to complete two continuing education lectures. Wow. Yeah, in order to renew her uh, particular license, I'm guessing she was a veterinarian or something. Mm-hmm. I had just learned that horses and cows only REM when laying down. And then as I'm listening to Kat on the podcast, mm-hmm. she says the exact same thing. <laughs> then you were talking about the red honeybee incident in New York. And I was at that time learning about honeybees in New York. So, yeah, the box of oddities. Um, effect. <laughs> it's happening. It's real. It's real. Hashtag T-B-O-O-E. Tabooey. What you got for me? What, what you, what, what you, what you got for me? What, 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 what you got for me? What's a ninja? But like, really, what is a ninja? My introduction to ninjas was, of course, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mm -hmm. uh, later the movie Three Ninjas, and of course, Beverly Hills Ninja, starring Chris Farley. Mine was Kung Fu Panda (laughs) 2. That was your introduction to ninjas? Yeah. I don't know. You've never even seen Kung Fu Panda. No. No, I've not. And I guess that technically would be Kung Fu, right? That doesn't necessarily lead to ninjaism. That's exactly correct. Ninjadom as the kids call it. That's right. A ninja or shinobi was a secret agent or mercenary of uh, Japan specializing in unorthodox arts of war, especially what later became known as ninjutsu or the art of the ninja. So the functions of a ninja included espionage, deception, and surprise attacks. Of course, we we all picture like the sneaky ninjas in their black jams mm-hmm. making their way through, uh, climbing up walls using knives and all that business. Though the shinobi, specially trained as spies and mercenaries, appeared in the 15th century, antecedents uh, may have existed as early as the 12th century. So versions of ninjas uh, have gone back for centuries and centuries. So there's like this ninja evolution. Absolutely. Okay. Ninja versus samurai. So samurai were the hereditary military nobility and officer caste of medieval and 
early modern Japan from the 12th century to the 1870s. And the difference is uh, samurai were hereditary and a much higher class. I see. Ninjas were very often lower class members of society. And because their covert methods of waging irregular warfare were deemed dishonorable, they were beneath the honor of the samurai. I see. Because they were sneaky, it was dishonorable? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And because they they weren't noble Noble. members of society. Matt Alt is uh, the author of a book called Ninja Attack. And this comes from Kotaku.com. Ninja most certainly did exist in Japan, but they were more about information and disinformation than assassination. Hmm. So, yes, they were ninja assassins, but Matt Alt points out that you know that there are a ton of CIA agents, but how many of them are trained assassins? Like, you can be a part of this group without being that specialized Sure. Part of that group. All right. So the whole point of a ninja was to blend in, not wear black jams and stand out. And climb walls with knives. Exactly. Okay. Ninja often dressed as farmers so that they could do just that while being out in the country and collecting information and scouting enemies. So you wouldn't, if you saw a farmer out in the field wearing a black onesie, you'd be a little suspicioso. (laughs) Um, so the, the idea was to blend in, but also, um, in many cases, being a ninja didn't pay a lot. So you might have to have a day job, which might be you're a farmer. Okay. Imagine, says Alt, that the year is 1600 and two of your enemies are fighting a battle. So you send a couple of guys dressed as farmers to that area to watch the battle and report back about what's happening. That would be ninja work. Okay, I see. So, yeah, so it was really more about espionage. Very much so. Okay. According to Fascinate.com, ninjas did have a lot of tools that they used. And depending on what your specialty was, that can change. Shuriken was a term used to describe any object or tool that a ninja would throw. So, like, throwing stars, which is kind of what we picture in our heads. Mm -hmm. Um, But it didn't have to be throwing stars. In fact, there's a lot of um, conflicting information about what throwing stars were actually used for. And if throwing was really one of those things, Hmm. Hmm. it might have been used for slashing or poking or just fear. They could have have thrown garden hose. Exactly. Because they wanted to blend in. In fact, there are reports of farm equipment being... What's the word? Multi-purposed? Yeah, exactly. Or altered in such a way wow. that it could conceal weapons. Oh, that's so cool. So maybe you have a scythe yeah. that shunk shunk. And you've got a samurai sword. Well, you wouldn't have a samurai sword or, because they're not samurai. Right, right. You would have a, a samurai wannabe sword. Or, or a ninja sword. Or a ninja sword. Could have that. Yep. Ninja had to learn about scouting and survival. They had to know how to scoot about unseen. They had to know about poisons and explosives. Maybe they wanted to get in and out of a place without being known. Maybe poison is the best option for whatever uh, task they had at hand. Maybe they wanted to create a diversion. So they had to have a cursory knowledge of a lot of things, including regular old professions, because if you 
were going to pretend to be a farmer to get information, if someone asked you questions about farming, you'd have to know the answers. Of course. Otherwise, you'd be, you'd be caught. So they had to know a lot about a lot. Now, since many ninjas dressed as farmers, um, the weapon of choice was very likely the kusarigama, which was like a sickle with a chain attached to it. Ooh. And this is, again, according to Matt Alt, uh, this weapon was ideal because it could be disassembled into farmer's tools and it blended in. That must have been a deadly weapon. Oh, for real. Swinging that thing around? But as far as weapons go, there's really no evidence that shows that what we picture as being ninja weapons, quote unquote, throwing stars, were ever really used in combat. What about nunchucks? I don't have anything here specifically about nunchucks, but I would imagine that that's a very similar idea to like the farm equipment being disassembly. Yeah, right. Yeah. So because of the nature of what a ninja was, determining what was true and what was false is very difficult. Um, That's mostly because ninjas encouraged rumors about their abilities in the 15th century. People thought that they could read minds, that they could literally disappear, that they had supernatural powers. And this was all about misdirection and instilling fear in their enemies. Hmm. So um, they told very tall tales about their abilities. So you never really knew what they could do and what they couldn't do. And what they could do was still pretty amazing. So there, you don't know what to expect, which I guess is uh, true for the ninjas um, and the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Ninjas did have floats that allowed them to make their way across water. Oh, I was thinking like parade floats. (laughs) That's not blending in. (laughs) (laughs) No, these um, might have been what gave the impression that ninjas could walk on water. I see. Because they could stand on these floats and make their way across bodies of water. And so probably that was a little a little creepy. One thing that is thought to be true is that of all the tools that the ninja used, one of the most valuable were crickets. What? So crickets were used to aid the ninja in their covert missions. They would be induced to chirp with the use of uh, chemicals. They had like a special mixture of chemicals that they could use that would make a cricket chirp. And that sound would be used to disguise the uh, gentle footsteps of a ninja so that they would maneuver undetected. That's incredible. So there is an article in BBC.com about the last remaining ninjas. And there are a few. Jinichi Kawamaki is thought to be Japan's last ninja grandmaster. That's according to a ninja museum, which has a name I'm not going to try to pronounce. He was the 21st head of the Ban family, one of 53 families that made up the Koka ninja clan. So he started learning ninjutsu when he was six from his master. And a lot of times ninjas would learn at a very young age ninja techniques by way of games. Mm. So they'd think they were just playing, but they were really learning how to be super quiet, how to evade a detection, um, how to break into homes, you know, fun kid stuff. So, so oh, I just looked at the clock. It's 11, 11. Oh, hey. So even the training of a ninja, a young ninja mm-hmm. in this case, was secret. Yeah. They didn't even know they were being trained up in ninjadom. That's exactly right. 
Kawamaki inherited the clan's ancient scrolls when he was 18. And so it became it was very common for the skills to be passed down from father to son, but many young men were adopted into the ninja clans. There were ninja ladies too, and one of their uh, special tools of the trade was they had uh, metal nails that they would attach to their fingertips, kind of like cat's claws. Mm. But I digress. There is also, according to this article, 80-year-old Masaki Hatsuma, who is the leader of another surviving ninja clan, the Togakuri. Now, Hatsumi is the founder of an international martial arts organization with more than 300,000 trainees worldwide. In order for you to be a ninja, that has to be passed on. You have to be a... It's almost like you are a... Heir? Yeah. There has to be a formal, you are the one who's going to carry this on, right? You can teach the skills to any number of people, but for it to be ninja, you have to pass it on. And it has to be a... Like a ceremonial Kind of, thing. yes. And both of these last surviving ninjas have said that there is no place for true ninja-ness in modern societies. Ninjadom, I think, so, is the term. Oh, is that what we decided? Yeah, yeah. So neither of them are passing it on. Well, I don't know. Let's wait and see. You know, things could change in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> so they're the last known of these clans. They've decided, both of them, that they're not passing on their hmm. ninja-dom. Um, so they're, like I said, the, the skills may still be there and out there and available and taught and learned. But uh, this may be the last of the ninjas. The real ninjas. Yeah. That's fascinating. And this goes back century after mm. century after century. It's been passed on. Yeah. Wow, that's an, that's an amazing story. I thought so. And, and kind of sad. I don't want to see ninjas go away. Well, well you uh, wouldn't see them anyway. Well, that's true. <laughs> you have a point. So any hoozle, we... Uh, we look forward to seeing you again in the near future, um, probably within days. Oh, we're just wrapped. Oh, oh that's were it. You, were you not done? No, I was, I guess. It's just that was very like, <laughs> cat's done story time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. All right. It's. I guess it's time to go have lunch anyway. Oh, we have uh, heard your request for guinea pig weeks. And the next time we have a story that we feel is a downer. Yeah. Yeah. We will see what we can do in providing weeks for you. All right. We'll see you soon. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? 
It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 